Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What happened in Socorro, New Mexico in April 1964? When did toads invade Worcester, Massachusetts? What did it all have to do with our old friend Joe Ferrier? Hey there, and welcome to the 477th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And those uh, questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So we bring you a special show this evening in honor of Joe uh, Joe Ferrier, who uh, passed, or shall we say translated, as we normally say on the show, uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, so feel free to call in, and uh, it's uh, f- the number's tonight, 401-766-1240. Again, that's 401-766-1240. And uh, anywhere else in the United States, you can call 800 449 one, two, four, zero. Well, Joe Ferrier, a native of right here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, was the host of Woonsocket Open Line here on ON 1240 every weekday for over 50 years. He was also a respected UFO researcher here in the Blackstone Valley since the 1960s and the editor of Probe magazine. His photographs of UFOs taken in neighboring Cumberland, Rhode Island, in that decade are world famous today. Joe was an aficionado of all things strange. Indeed, and uh, when he wasn't here at uh, Owen 1240 Studios, Joe could usually be found at his uh, really very cool uh, Joe's, Joe's Moldy Oldies, uh, his uh, very cool record store, and other things, including magazines and other things that you'd find that are moldy and oldie, uh, right here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And he was a good friend and a true gentleman of ours. I really enjoyed working with him. Yeah, we used to look forward to Mondays we'd come in because our show was right after his, and a great, great fellow, very much missed. We recently received a call from a neighbor of ours, that's Ben and I, who said that she had some old UFO material and wondered if we would like to have it for use on the show. Uh, we very gratefully said yes. All the material is interesting, but among it, we found some Joe Ferrier memorabilia, including a copy of another magazine he ran, Controversial Phenomena, which we had never heard of and for which Joe had reporters all over North America. Now, we have before us the July-August 1964 issue, and we thought it would be fun to go through it this evening because there's some pretty amazing stuff in here. In addition, we have some uh, other material that I think you're going to find very interesting, uh, especially you local folks. Now, I'm uh, not going to give the name of the, the people who are kind enough to give us this material or mm. any of the names associated with the here, because I, I, this is, they're probably still around. But in any case, uh, let's, uh, let's take a look at this. Now, if you want to look at the pictures, if you have access to the Internet, at BehindTheParanormal.com, there, uh, there are a bunch of links on the left, and you will see uh, talking points. So hit the Talking Points link, and it'll bring you to a page where for the 2013 shows where this... Yeah, and go to the 2013 shows, and you'll see the Talking Points for, for this show, which include uh, this particular cover of this magazine. And one thing that strikes me, and I'll, I don't know if anybody's listening in there. I can hold this up to the, the camera there. Oh, hold, oh, yep, yep, it's already on there. Okay, good. good. And the, the funny thing is that, so you see, Ben, what do you think? That, that looks like a young Joe Ferrier to me in that. But it kind of does, yeah, I can see that. Now, John not only did most of the writing for this, but he found the articles and, and printed them in this magazine. And, of course, this is the 1960s, so it's all typewritten and stuff. But he also did the artwork. And I, I'd heard that he was an artist, but a rather decent one, because this fellow running from a UFO on the cover looks just like a young Joe Ferrier to mm. me. So there you have it. So check that out on our Talking Points page. He has one of the first reports here on page one of the Socorro, New Mexico, 
uh, landings here. And it's, it's really, a, that was a, a very, very famous case. And uh, he writes here as an extra, this is Joe writing, added bonus for our readers. And because the Socorro UFO landing has brought the much maligned flying saucer back into the public eye, we are reproducing herein a few of the newspaper accounts that appeared in New Mexico. And again, this is Joe's April 28th, I should say, uh, July-August 1964 issue. And the dateline of the paper here, Socorro, New Mexico, April 28th, 1964. And uh, the, the uh, subheading, City Policeman Zamora, that's Lonnie Zamora, reports sighting egg-shaped object and views takeoff. Tourists sees craft just before landing. So what appears to be substantial evidence of an unidentified flying object landing and taking off in Socorro has been observed. City policeman Lonnie Zamora, a highly reliable source, saw a four-legged, egg-shaped craft and two persons in a gully a mile south of the courthouse shortly before 6 p.m. Friday. He saw the object rise straight up and take off and disappear beyond Six Mile Canyon to the west. Some of the evidence of the landing and takeoff remained in the gully. There were and experts whom we, who we know actually went out and checked those things back in the in the 60s and found uh, uh, landing marks, burn marks, this sort of thing. So uh, that's a case that can easily be looked up. Mm. Uh, on the next uh, next two pages here, Joe has Air Force consultant checks UFO in Socorro, and uh, Dr. Alan Hynek was a person whom I met just before he died. But he was a very very interesting fellow who was hired by the U.S. Air Force to debunk UFOs because a lot of people were calling at the time about this. And he ended up a UFO believer. So there you go. Now, we have some interesting things here uh, besides you. I'm going to get into some local stuff in a minute, but besides UFOs here, there is an interesting a bunch of what we would call in the business Fortean phenomena after Charles Fort, who was probably the greatest collector of odd things. He, he would spend most of his life in the... British Museum or the New York Public Library, and he would find all sorts of interesting things about, you know, frogs falling from the sky, things that really do happen, uh, things appearing and disappearing. Anything weird, he cataloged it and put it in a book that's about as thick as the old phone book used to be, back when people used phone books. So Ben's going to read for us some of the reports that Joe Ferrier has in here in his magazine, Controversial Phenomena, and here's one dated uh, May 22nd, 1964. Alrighty, uh, grab this from across the table here. So in Miami, Miami, Florida, a uh, snake hunter bitten by a pet cobra and hospitalized after his bride to be heard him call uh, her uh, 20 miles away for help uh, died last Thursday night. Uh, sure, I feel like I'm reading the morning news. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did that this morning. Uh, that is what I did this morning. <laughs> I'm still in. I'm still in uh, morning show mode. Should get into behind the paranormal mode, which I'm about to do right now. So Sherbert D. Lee, uh, 28. Uh, was uh, given all the anti-venom his body could tolerate and kept alive for two days with a mechanical respirator. His fiancée, Florence, I think that's Gutierrez. Uh, Gutierrez, I think. Gutierrez, yeah. Good old Florida Latino name. Yeah, I should remember my Spanish. Uh, uh, She she was uh, 32 at the time and said... uh, she was uh, reading at home on Tuesday night, which is that I heard him call up uh, Florence. And uh, she said she drove uh, to Lee's darkened house, broke in, and took him to the hospital. Wow. <laughs> That's really crazy. Yeah. Already. Yeah, Joe, Joe found so we, it. Yep. Yeah, so we're uh, moving, moving on. But to, this uh, idea of people hearing a loved one call from 20 miles away or 1,000 miles away is really, not uncommon in, it's in the sweet. paranormal. It's very sweet. 
Yeah, well, people are connected, and that's the thing. It doesn't have anything to do with time and space. Indeed. All right, let's see. What, what's next? Uh, Teddy uh, in Albany, in Albany uh, New York, and uh, I think that's uh, June uh, 21st, 1964, Teddy Bix had uh, heard of uh, flying saucers, but a flying garage? Well, that was uh, quite a bit different. Uh, Bix of Al- Albany uh, was uh, sweeping up leaves last April, when he uh, saw a garage rise up from a neighbor's property, uh, level off at about 15 feet, skim over a hedge, and crash into a road, and no one was hurt. Yeah, no, that sounds like the Hutchinson effect. Yeah. A uh, a, uh, spokesman for the Albany uh, Weather Bureau said it was uh, uh, caused by a freak gust of wind. That is some wind. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that's tornado. some wind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a well, there, a freak there are tornado. bursts and things that could that could do things that approximate that, I suppose. Yeah, but it, the way it's described is that it it rose up slowly and then psh, just crashed after 15 feet. Yeah. All right. Anyway, continuing. Uh, quote: uh, It wasn't uh, is a uh, it wasn't what is uh, classified as a twister. He said, uh, but if. Rising air currents were sufficient. A vacuum may have been created on the side of the garage, as it uh, would be in a tornado. I don't, I don't know about tornadoes, but well, actually, that's just what I just said. So, uh, coming up uh, with this, ne- uh, coming up next, you have uh, Worcester, the Worcester Evening Gazette, in 1964. Uh, about uh, the next day, came out with a story. Um, uh, this morning's uh, light rain uh, stirred. Hundreds of tiny hopping things uh, from their shady retreats into uh, dampened lawns along Nelson Park Drive, according to uh, the neighborhood residents. And uh, what could be more fun for schoolboys on the first day of summer vacation than scooping up a handful and uh, bringing them to mother for a loving caress? Huh, Mom? Now, I think I believe Joe wrote those. So he was a pretty good writer. I think that's very entertaining style and uh, a way to, like, way to report on I the I like news. how it's described as tiny hopping things. <laughs> well, see, this is real news. I mean, not like politics and all this stuff. <laughs> this, <you know. laughs> it's like that line from uh, A Christmas Story. Yeah. Guy swallows, like, what was it, like rubber yo-yo. band? Guy swallows yo-yo. Like, yeah. That's real news. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, next story, A Change of Pace. This was... Uh, June twenty fourth, uh, June twenty eighth, uh, nineteen sixty four, in uh, at a UPI. Uh, if you th- if you think you've heard uh, fish stories before, brace yourself. Here's a hum- a real humdinger. This is about the uh, fish that walks. Uh, fisherman Kenneth Wright uh, reports it. He was uh, fishing in uh, Horseshoe Lake near Jefferson, uh, South Dakota, when he hooked a six inch fish that he thought was a common bullhead. Uh, Wright says he flipped the fish onto the bank, and the thing started to run back to the lake. Uh, <laughs> Wright nabbed it and uh, found found that it had four legs. Wright reports that it it has uh, five fingers, uh, quote unquote fingers on its uh, front legs and four on the rear ones. Wright's walking fish is now dis- on display in a jar uh, of a preservative, a jar of preservative in a barber shop in uh, Sioux <laughs> City, <laughs> Iowa. Yeah. The, that's a squ- <laughs> well. That, that's the kind of thing that used to happen before people were organized about this, and even now, who knows what goes on? But well, know, I mean, <coughs> there were there are like w- walking fish. There's the Japanese snakehead uh, that it it can walk on land. Well, it doesn't walk, but it, it fingers. Well, no, that's the thing. I mean, they, it can it can like 
slither its way along land, and it can stay on land for like three or four hours, I think. Well, if, if this man was reporting this accurately, but if the thing's in some... I wonder where it is now. If it's in some barber shop, still. <laughs> yeah, who knows? But I mean, there... there our theory on this is that people see these very strange creatures that it's probably the result of some multiversal overlap, parallel world overlap, because in, in uh, as we always say in quantum mechanics, all things that can be possible under any set of the law, any laws of physics, um, do exist concretely, and sometimes they can impinge upon mm. whatever uh, other situations, other worlds, if you will. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, uh, this stuff's just fascinating. Fascinating yeah, well, this stuff. Is good old all Joe gathered all this together. So, <clears throat> is there more? Uh, no, that's it for this page. Okay, but okay. there is an article at the top. Of Orson Welles monster comes to life? Question mark. Okay. Yeah, June 1964. Uh, there's a little drawing here of what looks like one of the tripods, actually, like from the War of the Worlds film. Uh, when was that? 1960? Or was that 1959? I'm trying to remember when it, it came out. Uh, I believe it was 59. Yeah, 59. And then the one a few years ago was... Yeah, uh, a 17-foot tall uh, skeleton of three units each uh, operated by a man, uh, which uh, one unit uh, sketched here, one of the uh, three units, uh, which it is said will enable man to uproot a tree, uh, step over a parked car, or tote a heavy load up the side of a cliff. Uh, the machine's units uh, translate, transmit, and amplify the operator's movements of arms and legs. It is known to be a, let's see, let me see if I can pronounce this, a uh, pedipulator, uh, and, and uh, the uh, machine is an improvement over a robot in that it will uh, benefit the human guidance from within. Or benefit from human guidance within. Sorry. Uh, messing up my articles. Uh, it is uh, being deployed by GE for the United States Army. Uh, Boy, wonderful. I'll tell you. Yeah, no, and, and, and again, if anyone has any uh, mem- <clears throat> excuse me, memories of Joe Ferrier uh, in this regard and his UFO work, uh, feel free to call in this evening locally, 401-766-1240. And uh, certainly from anywhere in the Western Canada, 800-449-1240. Okay. Ben's reminding me to get closer to the mic, something I never do. Here's a letter. There were also some letters in this package. There were a lot more than this magazine. There was an old scrapbook. Uh, th- there was a name on it. I won't give it over the air. So you might not appreciate it. It's probably still around. But this gentleman, uh, born in 1940, I could see from some of the documents in there, uh, w- was uh, a real UFO aficionado, obviously a friend of Joe Ferrier's, and uh, even has a letter here written to Joe by a fellow by the name of John C. Ferguson from Prescott, Arizona, dated June 5, 1964. Dear Mr. Ferrier, thank you for your letter of May 19th offering me a position as Arizona representative for your fine publication, CPB, which is presumably the magazine we're reading, Controversial Phenomena. I don't know what the B stands for. Bulletin, maybe? Maybe. I thought I thankfully accept, if you like, you can make it teenage representative since I'm a 16-year-old high school student who's probably still around, maybe even listening to this broadcast. I personally uh, don't care about what, how you refer to him, I guess. Uh, please let me know soon what you expect of me. And he goes on. So Joe had reporters apparently all over the, the country and well, at least one in Ontario, Canada. So uh, Now, there's a letter here also that I found in this package from... Uh, the office of the Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, dated May 7, 1964. And this mm. is written to uh, one of Joe's 
apparently collaborators on this magazine. There are several names on it. One is A. A. Laprade of Worcester, Mass., uh, and another is Olivia La Rochelle of Woonsocket. And uh, again, I don't know these folks. Uh, hopefully, they're still around. But uh, anyway. This is to Mr. LaPrade in Worcester. Uh, Dear Mr. LaPrade, regarding your query as to whether Coast Guard vessels ever sight unidentified underwater objects, as reportedly the Navy has, it might well be true that our vessels have done so, but we do not have such a listing of reports available. We can understand your interest in unidentified objects, but because of the few persons on our staff, this is the Commandant's Office, United States Coast Guard. Do you ever see the size of the building in Washington? No, never have. Because of the few persons on our staff... We are unable to spare the lengthy time it would involve to conduct a research into the matter. Very truly yours, W.K. Thompson, Jr., Captain, U.S. Coast Guard, by direction of the Commandant. So there we are. Now, there's some other material in this magazine which is extremely interesting. Mm. We, uh, among the things in here is um, a draw, uh, well, a crayon sketch or drawing by a third grade girl whose name I will not give and this also is on oh, the well, third grade at the time well third grade at the time uh, yeah this presumably is from the the early 1970s though I really don't know uh, here is the picture and this purportedly shows uh, what I'm going to read next <clears throat> this apparently now this could very well be just an essay or something she made up just for a school assignment but it, I don't know it sounds uh Kind of interesting to me, and supposedly it happened in Woonsocket. And uh, the little girl's name is here, but her name was Tammy, but I won't give her last name. The Martians, it says. One day I was walking in the woods, then I came to an empty lot. I stayed for a while, and then all of a sudden something went bam, boom. Something like a flying saucer. So I looked at, at it. It was the most incredible thing I have ever saw. Okay, this is a third grader, by the way. Mm. So I went near it, but I didn't wa- didn't touch it. I was afraid. So then some of the creatures came out of the flying saucer. I was scared stiff. I didn't move. I was so afraid, I almost screamed, but I didn't. They came near me, and I backed up, and then I ran ha- as fast as I could go. So I went home. I told my parents, but they didn't believe me, so I didn't tell anybody else. I guess until the third grade teacher here. So, mm. well, maybe it was just sort of like an interesting occurrence or whatever. The assignment was like, well, yeah, it was interesting, all right. Yeah, it is definitely interesting. Yeah. I wonder where this was. I know I, it's in Woonsocket, but I don't know where. I'm wondering too because that hill. We live on Fairmount Hill, which is really strange. It is really weird. And I remember one incident. Now I've said this before in the air. When when you were we had just moved there in 1996, you were five years old, four or five, and we were taking a walk with your cousins. And the neighborhood dog, the sort of the self-appointed uh, traffic warden of the Eighth Avenue, up in the open space uh, lands up there, Fairmont Woods, as it's called. And we came upon a, a, a beautiful field. I'd never been in there before, because we just moved. A beautiful field of yellow flowers. It was breathtaking. You remember that? Mm, sort of. I sort of remember that. But there was another time too that I always forget about. Until you bring up, oh, remember that time we were in the woods and that really nice thing happened? Then there was that time I went in the woods with uh, my cousins and the, and uh, I think I was like eight or nine at the time because we had our dog back then. And um, we uh, decided to go through a walk through the woods and uh, we heard this like growling sound and um, 
the neighborhood dogs were that were with us. They we saw them running in the opposite direction out of the woods, and we were watching like, huh, where were they going? Turned around, saw this. I didn't. The only thing I really remember was this this shape that was like it was like uh, black with like red eyes, and that's all I remember seeing like a round like a round shape, and then I just bolted out of there. Yeah. So yeah, I remember you talking about that. Yeah, but the reason I bring up this field is this: it, it, usually you come to a clearing in the woods, as this little girl describes, mm. and there I, I have never been able to find this field again. And it's only thirty acres, and it's it's right up above our house. But I've never been able to find it again. So perhaps uh, was this some sort of multiverse experience, or if this indeed happened, it isn't just some story that she told right. for the sake of a class assignment. So we don't know if. Uh, Tammy happens to be listening and recognizes what she wrote from all those years ago. Feel free to call in. Okay, now here, here's another interesting uh, thing in our little collection that the neighbor kindly gave us, and this is, uh, I guess, from the Winsocket call. Is it from the Winsocket call? It must be. There's no. Is there's there a no, date? No, there's no. There's no date on sure it. Sure, there's. I can top. Look at the wrong side. Uh, oh yeah, October. 12th, 1976. Yesterday, compared with some of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's an article from Bellingham, and the object hovers in the sky. It's and Bellingham, un- Massachusetts, for you outlanders. Indeed. Uh, an unidentified flying object described as a uh, multicolored saucer that hovered in the southeast portion of the sky over an area between Route 126 and 140 was reported to uh, police at uh, 2.45 uh, in the morning. I would say this morning, but that would be incorrect because this was like this was a good like thirty years ago, yeah. forty years ago. Um, it looked it looked like a, a big star. Administrative Sergeant uh, Joseph L. Uh, Grassi said. So the police saw it too. Mm, uh, but it kept changing color from red to blue to green. Uh, it did not appear to be moving. Uh, Grassi was one of uh, several policemen who witnessed the object, uh, which was reported to uh, police by two unidentified uh, civilians who visited the police station early that morning. Uh, The two men told civilian dispatcher uh, Robert Shea Jr. uh, that the object was hovering overhead and changing colors for at least 20 minutes. And uh, uh, Franklin and State Police, uh, Franklin, Massachusetts, and Massachusetts State Police reported seeing the unidentified flying object Grassi said, uh, within minutes of the report, Shea telephoned uh, Logan International Airport uh, in Boston, where officials in the tower reported uh, seeing some sort of uh, unidentified object on the radar. Indeed, very interesting. Shall, very I interesting. On, shall I go on to the next story? What's the next story? Uh, it's from the same day. Okay. Uh, actually, this is continued. Sorry. <laughs> oh. uh, for a brief period of time between uh, losing sight of... Uh, uh, losing sight of the object, uh, the Logan officials told Shea they would attempt to send an airplane uh, to investigate the report of the flying saucer. Uh, Franklin, poli- Franklin police called the fire department uh, that morning at 2.47 and reported that an unidentified flying object had crashed on East Central Street near Sherman Sherman. It crashed Chevrolet. on East Central Street in Bellingham. I guess. Uh, uh, Sherman Chevrolet dealership and an engine was uh, sent to the area but nothing was found. You know, that reminds me of something. And I wish I had in front of me um, one of our cousins borrowed who was also into this subject. The uh, fire officer's emergency manual. I, I wish I could remember it offhand. But in there, it, this is present in every fire station 
in this country and, and every police station too. It's you know it's a manual for emergency situations. There's an entire chapter on what to do if a UFO lands or crashes. And this is no word of a lie that this is present in this book. I like how it's in the fire department manual, but you, <laughs> you don't hear about it from anywhere else. Well, no, it's, it's what to do. Yeah, even if there, there are bodies, you know, wait for a higher authority to arrive. Don't touch them. You know, try. You know, what? It's it's astounding. We're going to do a show on that sometime because just simply reading it will be fascinating. I think yeah, yeah. Do, do we do we own Cousin a copy Joe. of that? We do, but uh, cousin Joe has it. Oh, of course. Yeah. Whenever we need a book, it's always borrowed. Borrowed by somebody exactly. So, yeah. okay, time for a break. I, I don't know. Somebody stole my phone. Well, yeah. If you if you uh, we can go to a break if you'd like. Okay, why don't we take our break and then we'll get back to Joe Ferrier's magazine. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON, 1240 AM in New England's gorgeous Blackstone River Valley. Stay with us. Attention, Northern Rhode Island. One socket's turning 125 years old. It's time to celebrate. On Thursday, August 29th, Main Street in downtown Woonsocket becomes a huge block party. There'll be food, games, dancing, and music headlined by the James Montgomery Blues Band. WOON will be broadcasting live on Main Street starting at 4 p.m. We're giving away T-shirts. Stop by and get yours. T-shirts are courtesy of Bank Rhode Island, Cardi's Furniture, and Ollie's Pizza. That's Thursday night, August 29th. Main Street becomes a huge block party as we celebrate one socket turning 125 years old. WOON broadcast live beginning at 4 p.m. Come down and join us. Host of Owen Socket Open Line for many, many years on this station. And he also was a well known UFO expert of the early and late and early and late 1960s and early 1970s. And we're going through uh, just some of the material that we recently came into contact with that was given to us by very kindly by a neighbor who. Uh, uh, who's uh, I, perhaps uh, I've never been able to find out who exactly collected this material, but there's reams of material, scrapbooks on many many UFO cases, including some local ones that we have been uh, reading about tonight. One of the things that strikes us here too is there is an, a, a UFO report, and I'm not going to give the gentleman's name again. Uh, if he's still around, he's certainly welcome to call in this evening. But he is sending an application form to the. Uh, the uh, I, the International UFO Registry in Hammond, Indiana. We found the material in this packet of information. It, it had never been sent, and it was still in the sealed envelope. We felt that we could open it because uh, this had just been given to us. So uh, this is um, answer to one of the questions. Uh, have you ever seen a UFO? And he said yes. He answered yes to that, and he said. Uh, um, writing is a little hard to read. Uh, last objects seen were 10, 12, 1975. Haven't seen any more since. All right. And uh, they were the same as I described and sent in citing descriptions. No, that I don't have a copy of. Uh, when I, re- I 
rewrote you for an application form 112175. And he goes on <coughs> talking about his experiences locally here in, uh, presumably in the Woonsocket area. Uh, I would like to note my sincerity in trying to explain uh, something, the unexplained... Back when everybody wrote in cursive. Yeah, yeah, we're not used to that anymore. No. Uh, no. UFOs, and he uh, just stresses that he's not a person who imagines things, and he's very careful in his sightings, and he would not report anything dishonestly, and uh, it's very interesting. But again, that this was uh, was never sent, so uh, there we are. Now, here is a, a report. You know, one of the things uh, I meant to mention before the break, Ben, was that uh, this report from Bellingham in uh, 19, what was 1975? 76. 76. Uh, is exactly like the one we got last night on last night's show on our CBS edition from our reporter. Oh, yeah, in, Kyle Dayton. Yeah, yeah Kyle Dayton. And we, we, uh, Joe wasn't the only one who had a reporter in Arizona, so do we. Our, the show has reporters. Uh, Kyle Dayton from the Phoenix area, well-known UFO expert down there, television personality, uh, called in last night with a sighting that, that, that is virtually identical to what was described in this 1976 Winsocket Call article about the Bellingham sighting. Right. Uh, a li- light in the sky, uh, green, even the same colors, red and white, Alternating, uh, only this one moved in a uh, was described in a snake-like fashion and didn't crash and did didn't crash in uh, Bellingham, Massachusetts. Very clumsy aliens. Here we are. So um, anyway, um, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, just just a little reminder there. There's plenty more in this magazine. Right. Um, Here's a report from um, this. I guess it's the first report from this young person who uh, had written to Joe earlier about being a reporter for this magazine, Co- uh, Controversial Phenomena, and um, he's writing to um, Mr. LaPrade here. So here's the form you sent me, I'm sure, let's see, we're, here, here's his report, I guess this is from Arizona. We were living in a nice four-room house in the country, about eight or nine miles from the nearest town, that certainly wouldn't be Rhode Island. That night at 8.45 p.m., a mother went out to the small storage shed in our backyard. She had only been outside for a few minutes when she noticed a very bright light, which was low in the western sky, moving slowly in an easterly direction toward our house. Mother went to the back door and told me to hurry outside. When I did, she asked me if I saw anything in the sky. I told her I saw a, quote, funny-looking fuzzy light, unquote. When I first saw that, it appeared to be a fuzzy light, but after watching it for about ten minutes... But was it indeed funny? Well, I, 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 he didn't mention that he started laughing. Yeah, I, I was making a little play on words there. Right. Okay. Very good. Uh, for about ten minutes, the object came close enough for us to clearly see its unusual shape. Then it stopped and hovered for about three minutes. We noted that it appeared to be large and a, at a higher altitude than we first saw, saw it. It had a very bright, luminous glow that was white in color. Although we heard no sound, our cat, Smokey, who was in the house at the time, was looking out the window and howling wildly as if it, were se- as if it sensed or heard something that frightened it. I went in the house and turned off all the lights so we could see the object better. When we watched it, it started moving upward, gaining altitude. Then it stopped and made a zigzag motion, then went up still higher and suddenly disappeared. It was now 9.15 p.m. We had been watching it for about 30 minutes. We waited a while longer, but it did not reappear. We went back to the house. We noticed the cat had quit howling, but was still very scared. I'm sure that the object we saw was not a mirage or hallucination. Mother and I had never been interested in flying saucers. In fact, I'd never heard of such a thing at the time. 
I have never heard of anyone seeing a UFO with this exact shape. After seeing that UFO, it wasn't long until we became very interested in the subject of flying saucers. Since then, I've kept my eyes open, and I hope to see another one, but I doubt if I ever will. Okay. You never know what you're going to see here. <laughs> another letter to our, our old friend, Joe Ferrier. You know, we, we talked about this with Joe a lot, and as a matter of fact, there were things that he said on our show uh, that were, it was, uh, oh, I, I can't believe I didn't bring in the date. But anyway, if you look at, it was back in 09, Joe was on our show back when we were on on Saturday mornings, and he said some things that he had never said on the air before, and I felt kind of honored by that. But one of the things we dis- I discussed with him privately uh, more than once was the reason for the variety of, cr- of craft that seemed to be obvious in some of these sightings, especially these early ones. Mm. Because people describe these as nuts and bolts craft, and to this day, people like our old friend Stan Friedman, who was on a few weeks ago with us here on ON, uh, describes these, uh, still kind of holds to these as kind of nuts and bolts craft, but other people... I think it comes down to uh, perception. I think it does, Because too. if you want it... Because back in the day, uh, this was like the 60s, 70s, and like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when you had like the uh, those B movie thrillers, like Teenagers from Outer Space, and things like that, where Teenagers from Outer Space. Yeah, it's really okay. bad. It's, yep. it's a terrible film. Don't even bother watching. I it. won't. It's um, but what I'm trying to get at is people were thinking of these things like it was the Jetsons or whatever. So they saw flying saucers, and maybe they saw them as literal flying saucers that were nuts and bolts and things like that. Now, you have UFOs now, which look more like balls of energy or whatever. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you don't really see too much, like, physical craft anymore. You see, like... Oh, that's not the right word. They're... They are physical, but they're not physical. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Well, this is where it, it, it sort of connects with ghost research. Right. And ghost hunting, if I dare use the term. Because this is where it's starting to come together. And, and we ourselves, as we've said many times on the air, start out uh, looking at cases at great length. And people will call us in on a ghost situation or something like that or something very negative. And especially if the one in Connecticut, it turns into a UFO case half the time. Not half the time, but frequently enough. Mm. Uh, here's another thing from... Uh, I'm sorry, you finished? Yeah, I'm done. Here's another thing from Joe's uh, magazine here. Again, this July-August 1964 issue of Controversial Phenomena, published by Joe Ferrier. And uh, the one on the bottom there is kind of interesting. The Little Men Reports. Little Men Reports are from South America. In 1950, Dr. Bosa uh, saw three little uh, dead men dressed in brown suits which enveloped them from head to uh, foot. Enveloped, I think. Enveloped, yeah. sorry. Yeah, enveloped them from head to foot except for the face. 1954, uh, Pedro Moraes uh, saw two little men, apparently the same size, clad in yellow suits, which enveloped them, including the face. On the night of December 10th, 1954, two young boys, Lorenzo Flores and Jesus Gomez of... Uh, Cararo, uh, Venezuela, uh, were uh, rabbit hunting near the uh, Trans-Andean uh, Highway where they spotted a shiny object, which they thought was a car. Uh, they, appar- they approached it and found that it was uh, an aircraft of uh, unusual design. It looked uh, like uh, two uh, washbowls on... T- uh, there we go, saucers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looked like two washbowls on, on atop the other and uh, hovering about three feet off the ground. They estimated it to be about nine feet in diameter, and they said it ga- gave out fire from the bottom. 
uh, quote unquote. Uh, then four little men came out of it. They uh, seemed to be about uh, three feet tall. Uh, then uh, when they uh, realized uh, we were there, they grabbed uh, Jesus and uh, tried to drag him to the object. Lorenzo tried to beat them off with his uh, unloaded shotgun, uh, but the gun seemed to have uh, uh, struck rock or something hard as the gun broke into two pieces. Good heavens. Uh, an earlier incident described uh, little men dragging rocks and dirt uh, to their uh, ship earlier one morning in Caracas. Uh, these uh, little men no- knocked a uh, person 15 feet uh, when he tried to stop them. <laughs> That's my dirt. Uh, in order to immobilize him, they uh, shone a uh, green light, quote-unquote, on him while they uh, entered their ship, uh, he said. And as a little, little uh, illustration of um, the craft... Well, that's terrifying. <laughs> well, you know, of course, why don't you hold up? Maybe people can see the illustration. There uh, is too small. No, it's... Or I could just do this. Okay. There we go. There's a little illustration for those of you uh, listening to us on the inter- computer. Well, yeah, watching us on the yes. internet. I always forget this is TV, too. I have to make sure not to laugh at things. But in any case, the, the the question arises, of course, naturally people can say, you know, that these were people who imagined things or hoaxes or whatever, especially when teenagers are involved, because the next one's from teenagers. Uh, mm, uh, but course. again, you know, you just don't know. And Joe, as we remember him, was a very, very careful fellow. Yeah. He didn't just take things at face value, you know, and uh, I didn't know him in the 1960s, but I don't think he was probably all that different, so I've heard. So Just a little younger. Uh, well, somewhat younger, yes, weren't we all? You weren't. I was. I didn't even exist in the sixties. Yeah, that, 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 well, you know, well, I don't think that's true. I like. You know, to you, think don't that. forget our multiverse theories. Yeah. I always wonder. You know, if people ask me, "What's going to happen to me when I die?" Well, where were you before you were born? Ha ha. You know. Ho ho. Where were we all in eighteen eighty nine? Somewhere. So here's another in uh, page sixteen of of Joe Ferrier's magazine, a Comprehen- uh, comprehensive phenomena. Uh, I should say, uh, controversial phenomenon. It's uh, monsters, monsters, monsters. Joe probably wrote those. Oh, no, he didn't, actually. Reported by three teenagers and their names. Oh, three magazine representatives, three of Joe's reporters. Okay. Sister Lakes, Michigan, June 11, 1964. Boy, 64 was an active year, I guess. Indeed it was. The monster of Sister Lakes made an appearance Thursday along a lonely wooded road and scared the daylights out of three young girls. The monster, described as a creature nine feet tall, more than 500 pounds in weight, and sporting a black leather, leathery face. I thought I was going to say black leather jacket. <laughs> black leathery greaser. face had been seen mostly at night, but is now apparently bold enough to put in daylight appearances. Joyce Smith, 13, Patsy Clayton, 12, and her sister Gail, 13, saw it. Joyce saw it first and fainted. Patsy stood immobilized with fear. Then the thing disappeared in the underbrush. After a woman reported that the monster had scared her out of her yard two nights ago, uh, Cass County Undersheriff Ernie Krause announced he would attempt to track it down with a posse. Here we go. A posse? Ooh. Yes. (laughs) Skeptics uh, there are, but others think there is more to it. For instance, Mrs. Utrip's husband, John, who said he saw the monster two years ago as he drove into his backyard, it was standing behind a bush, he said. Mrs. You know, that reminds me of the, of the Bigfoot sighting up near Spring Lake. Oh, yes. In Burlville, uh, yeah, yeah, Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember that. Except that was a white, white uh, 
Yeah, it was like albino. A, a, a sort of a very lost, abominable snowman. Or, the, yeah. or it was just old. Anyway, this uh, poor woman uh, went outside to investigate a noise at the rear of her home Tuesday night. Again, we're talking about back in 1964. As she stooped alongside the house, she heard, quote, great thumping feet, unquote, pounding toward her and felt the ground trembling. That same night, Gordon Brown, a farm worker at a nearby farm, said he saw a monster standing between a shed and a barn. He and two other men chased it but lost it in the woods. Brown's and Utrecht's descriptions did match, said Krauss. Mrs. Utrecht said, quote, I know it sounds as if I were ready for the bug house, but this thing is getting on my nerves. A 6 by 18 footprint was found alongside Utrecht's farm. Some of the witnesses say the monster sounds like a tame goose. I love how people who weren't there, you know, hurl down these thunderbolts about what these things really are. Mm. Uh, and others say it sounds like a baby crying. Deputies said dogs get unnerved and die for cover when it is near. All right, so, th- okay, that's uh, as far as this goes. But again, oh, no, here, I'm sorry, Joe goes over to the next column. The monster has been a local legend for years. Geologist Victor, good Lord. Uh, uh, is that to, his name? To Ver de Kolobov. Good Lord, heavens... Uh, Anyway, you're part Russian on your mother's side. Maybe you could read this. Uh, claimed to have seen it in 1953, the year I was born, in nearby Lake Labaknir. Oh, you know what? I'm reading a Russian story. It's, it's not a run over to the column. Joe was a good writer and an excellent researcher, but uh, needed a little instruction in publication. Well, this was layout. all, like, hand, like, made. Well, that's true. That's true. So he had to, like, anyway. arrange it himself. So anyway, Joe, as you can see, was very interested in all areas of the paranormal, not just UFOs, just as we are. Uh, so uh, since I start, I read the last part of that story, I might as well read the first part. Where is the first part? Up, uh, above the, fir- the second part, uh, between, <laughs> with an illustration between it. The following report comes from CPB. That's the, CPB representative Lucius Farish. He had more reporters than our show does. We have yeah. about 12 He's got at least that much or more. I think he had way more back in the day. May 31st, 1964, Moscow. Presumably Russia, not Moscow, Maine. A team of Russians plumbed the murky depths of Siberia's Lake Voroda Saturday to seek a weird lake monster, which, according to local legend, has convulsions, a hair-raising voice, and likes reindeer. Well, like his pets uh, to eat? What? Uh, Collects them. Uh, the monster has uh, been a local legend for years, and this is, and that's why. Hence, the uh, geologist uh, Victor, what's his name, claimed to have seen it in 1953 in nearby Lake Labaknir. Engineer Victor Frumson, writing in the English language Moscow News, reported that he had seen it in the Voroda region last year. The two descriptions agreed only in that it was quote spherical and horrible. Sphere- spherical and horrible. So it was either very fat. Or it or was some very interesting kind of creature that Cthulhu. He wasn't spherical. He had a lot of tentacles. That is true. Well, yeah. he had a spherical. Referring head. to the upcoming uh, Necronomicon in Providence, uh, Lovecraft Conference, H.P. Lovecraft. Anyway, uh, and there is a uh, map of the area of various lakes and uh, roads in there. So, so there's that as well. So Joe is going as far as Russia now for some of these stories. All right. Uh, here's one from the Worcester Daily Telegram, Ooh. May 13th, 1964. All right, here is, uh, this is, okay, let's see what this is. It's right there, if you want to. Alrighty, hey, that so one there, it starts at the top there. Alrighty, so Worcester Daily Telegram, this is uh, from May 13th, 
1964. Boy, the whole Blackstone Valley was hopping with paranormal events. <laughs> Seems like it. Yeah. Alrighty, so uh, a species that uh, once uh, die, uh, a species that once dies is forever dead. Uh, that fact, attested to by the evolutionary biologists, helps to explain the fervor uh, with which the uh, con- uh, conservationists uh, resist any action by man that might threaten the survival of some bird or beast or tree. I like how they just put trees in there. Uh, uh, George uh, Gaylor Simpson, a professor of uh, vertebrate paleontology at Harvard University, makes this statement on the development of um, living uh, living forms, uh, like life forms. Uh, No, that's a a savage. Uh, The civilized ones uh, drink, swear, and uh, blow each other to bits, uh, unquote. Astronomers uh, say there must be uh, many millions of planets in the universe uh, almost identical with ours, and uh, that intelligent beings like man, I like how it has to be like man, must inevitably have, yeah, that must inevitably have uh, evolved from uh, from some. Uh, In view of the, quote, essential of an Earth, unquote, uh, this assumption strikes Mr. Simpson as plainly false. There we go. The chances of such duplication on other planetary uh, abodes, he says, are, quote, vanishingly small, unquote. The existing species on Earth, uh, says Simpson, uh, quote, would have uh, been different if the start had been different and if any stage of the histories of organisms and their environments had been different, unquote. Uh, Thus, the existence of our present species depends on a very precise sequence of causative events through some uh, billion years or more. Or, as my astronomy teacher at CCRI once put it, a collision did it. So th- this is pretty sophisticated stuff in the mid-60s. That's what we call today the anthropic principle, mm. among other things. And he's also got, and we've actually found Earth-like planets, although they're extremely far away. Well, that doesn't mean they have life on them. Like, no. uh, like well, us. What do you mean life? I mean, see, this is what we get into all the time. What do you mean life? I mean, we have a very, very narrow biological definition of life that is totally inadequate, in my opinion. Life. Look at look at some of the life we encounter. I think we have. Uh, I think we have a lot more to worry about than <laughs> than things millions of light years away. But continuing. Well, I mean, but it's not millions. Of light. I mean, it's right next to us. If you parallel the world thing is correct. Well, that's true. I'm just I'm just saying for rhetorical yeah. purposes. Okay. Alrighty. All right. So it goes on. Okay. <laughs> Uh, man cannot be uh, cannot be exe- the, an exception to this rule. If the casual chain had been different, Homo sapiens uh, would not be. Uh, both courses followed by evolution and its processes clearly show that such evolution is not repeatable. No species of any uh, larger group has ever evolved. Uh, or can ever evolve twice. Man is unique. When he is gone, he will be gone forever, according well, that's, to our that's, that's our evolutionists. Not really accepted today. Evolution has fits and starts. Huge mutations take place quickly, and uh, that sort of thing. I mean, if you believe in that, right? Which apparently it seems to be the case. Yeah. So that's well. That's as far as it went, I guess. Yeah. Well, that fits right in with the rest of Joe's articles in here. That you know, there is a scientific connection and a scientific reverberation to all this stuff and mm-hmm. you know this uh, whatever for what it's worth this is an interesting one now this is not part of the controversial phenomenon phenomena magazine this is this i found this sort of just shoved in the pages here presumably by 
the relative of the person who gave us this material. Yeah. And it's, here again, 1964, June, Springfield, Missouri Press was the newspaper, and here's a story about something adds new twist to saucer file. Albuquerque, New Mexico, and this came from United Press International, which was used to be a big wire service. An Albuquerque mother said Monday she is worried because her 10-year-old daughter has been growing unusually fast since spotting a strange egg-shaped object in the sky in April. Mrs. Max Stahl said the girl, Sharon, has grown five and one-half inches and put on 25 pounds in the past month. Wow. Five and a half inches in a month? That's that's ridiculous. <laughs> she said her daughter's habits and personality also have changed since the incident. I'm so confused, I don't know what to believe, Mrs. How old? Stolson. How old was this girl at the time? Ten-year-old daughter. Ten years old? Ten years old. Now, you know I have a theory on this. What? When I read this, I said, aha. Do you remember some of the recent UFO? I know we've been talking... For, for those of you who aren't all interested in UFOs, I'm sorry. We've been doing a lot of UFO shows lately, but there's been an awful lot of material coming forward about mm. this. I, we were, especially with Ted Phillips and uh, Stan Friedman in recent weeks, we've been talking about people going into certain places and coming out knowing things they didn't know before, somehow smarter. Uh, next week we're going to have Andy Colvin on, who uh, had had one of the few positive Mothman experiences. Mothman, for those who don't know. Oh, he's yeah, he's, an, he's like a mathematician now. Yeah, uh, uh, Mothman was a media name given to this weird creature that appeared in the Ohio Valley of the United States around this time, 1964 to 66, yeah. and, and 68, around the time of this magazine Joe uh, Ferrier produced here. And this creature would create unbelievable terror in anybody who saw him. But there are a handful of people, including uh, Kevin, uh, Mr. Colvin, Andy Colvin, who'll be on with us next week, that, who had a positive experience and had something like this happen. He didn't start growing, but all of a sudden he understood math, and he was able to uh, get into uh, to music, and he could play uh, kind of like you, who picked mm-hmm. up the bass just by uh, on your own in a matter of a few weeks from what I remember uh, would you have a Mothman experience up in the woods there or? no okay well whatever maybe you're just smart but in any ca- <laughs> I think you are but in any case uh, interesting stuff I think this person perhaps had a multiverse experience of some kind contacted a place where maybe by means of this object which was using perhaps an overlap from a parallel world to enter ours or at least be seen from ours and part of that world might have been a smarter 10-year-old girl who was a little bigger and weighed... I don't know. I mean, these, this is all speculation, of course, but these, this is all uh, amazing uh, possibilities. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, we got any more time? We have another time for another article here from Joe Ferrier? Yeah, yeah, short one. Okay. Well, this isn't very short, but we can start it. Uh, this is a Colorful Saucers over Massachusetts, 1952 to 1964. And again, this is from his magazine, Controversial Phenomena, which we had never heard of until somebody just gave us one. Fall fashion note. The flying saucers now come in colored stripes with a white taillight. I love how Joe approaches her. That's the way two employees of the United Screw Machine Products Company describe one they claim they saw over the city about, again, this is Worcester, about 10.15 last night. Again, this is August 1952. Ronald N. LaPrade, the brother of the fellow who helped Joe with this magazine, and Roland C. Progren, said the luminous object shaped like a teardrop and racing at high speed toward the center of the city seemed to come from the direction of Grafton, Massachusetts. It had mixed colors, they said, blue, green, and red, and a white tail light. Now, here are those blue, green, and red lights again. Oh, yes. The blue was at the front, 
or wide end with the green in the middle and then the red. The two men who were at work said they went to a water bubbler. Oh, remember that? Ah, yes. Bubbler in the uh, New England um, New England East for a water cooler, I suppose, in the shop or a fountain in the shop for a drink. As they passed by a wide open door, they said the saucer, quote unquote, swished by at a distance of 150 yards and a height of 200 feet. It's not that far away. It no. made no noise, they asserted, and it seemed to be traveling parallel to Grafton Street in the direction of Worcester City Hall. Lepreid and Progren said that they were able to observe the object for about three seconds before their line of vision was blocked by nearby buildings. At that distance, they said, it looked about the size of an ordinary saucer. So apparently they were very familiar with flying saucers if they had something to compare it with. Oh, yeah. They said they were impressed with the tremendous speed of the object and said emphatically that it was not an airplane. All right. There's one for, another one from Lawrence. We have a lot of announcements tonight, so maybe we ought to kind of, you know... Uh, Lawrence Eagle Tribune, May 7, 1964. We'll, we'll do this. If people are interested, we'll, we'll continue with this uh, material from this packet, uh, some of which has a lot to do with our old friend Joe Ferrier, as we said, and uh, we'll see what else we can find. If you're interested, let us know. Right. So on to other things. For now, for something entirely different, well, moderately different, um, we will have a drawing in, uh, in early October for two free uh, four-ticket family packs for the uh, first... New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Mass., on uh, Saturday, October 26th. Among the speakers will be uh, some of the UFO experts uh, who are regulars on our show, Stanton Freeman, Kathleen Martin, Peter Robbins, and many, many more. And uh, my dad and I will be there to interview them in front of a live audience, so they'll take questions from the audience as well, besides us. Okay, so you can meet all these great folks and uh, even meet us if you want. So all you have to do to enter is uh, send an email to us at paul at behindtheparanormal.com or drop us a snail mail at Behind the Paranormal, care of WON 1240 AM, uh, 985 Park Ave, Socket, Rhode Island, 02895. Please include your name, address, phone number, your name including your first and last name, uh, address and phone number, and there's also a link at BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, the drawing will take place on air on uh, Monday, October 7th. And so again, there's no charge to enter this. It's just for fun, and you'll get some, maybe get some free tickets to this uh, this great conference where there are going to be some great speakers as well. So, uh, and again, you can also enter on Facebook. Uh, Behind the Paranormal has a Facebook page, and you can go to that and just uh, send uh, send us a message through that, and you can also <laughs> enter that way. But again, also just your name, your phone number, and um, what else did I say? Name, phone number, uh, address. And, uh, and uh, email address. address, right. Well, regular address as well. Okay, all right. Uh, also, Ben and I will be presenting Behind the Paranormal, A Cosmic Journey at the Harris Public Library here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, September 25th. There's no charge, no registration, and there will be refreshments. Ooh, there are going to be refreshments. I didn't even know that. Yeah, that's, that's the only reason we're going. No, <laughs> no we, just, we haven't made ourselves available to libraries around here in a long time. We have a lot of new stuff to report, so I think it should be a fun night. Right. Uh, so many thanks to our producer, Ben himself, and next week, Karen Anderson, the animal communicator, will be back with us. That's August 26th, and uh, we are still negotiating with her about what she's going to do, but there may be a chance to send in pictures of your pets, and she can tell you all about them. All right. In our CBS edition of the show on Sunday, August 25th, in Boston, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Detroit, uh, slash Windsor, and Seattle, and Vancouver, and on Radio.com, uh, we will be back with Andy Colvin, as we mentioned during the show, who has become a modern-day Charles Fort, a uh, great researcher of everything paranormal. And one of the two people who ever had a positive experience with the Mothman. 
And we leave you this evening with a thought from one of my favorite thinkers, the second century philosopher and Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius. Boy, those two jobs didn't often go together. No. (laughs) Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. Okay. We have more time. Yes. All right, how much more time? Uh, About 20 seconds. 20 seconds, okay. Well, again, a tribute this evening to our old friend Joe Ferrier, radio legend, paranormal legend, and a wonderful all-around fellow and a true gentleman whom we miss very much. Passed away a little bit more than a year ago. And uh, our our best wishes and honor to him, his family, and all those who have... um, have respected him over the years. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.